All right. Amen. I'm very happy to finally get the chance to do this, uh, to fill the, the pulpit for Pastor Kloss. And uh, thank you, Kevin, and the whole worship team for leading our great worship this morning. Um, I thank you all for your prayers as I prepared this message. So let's go to the Word this morning. Let's uh, open up the Bible and go to 1 Corinthians. We're going to go to chapter 6. And starting verse 9, we're going to read through verse 11. And it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you, you have been washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for us to approach your throne. We praise you for your goodness and we ask you now that your Spirit would illuminate your word as we open the scriptures to learn about your truth. Open our ears and our hearts to teach us to know your ways. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. So this passage by Paul is a declaration that Christ has unmade your old identity, and you have been remade in his likeness. Christ has unmade your old identity. You've been remade in his likeness. Or put another way, he's saying, stop acting unrighteous because you are no longer the unrighteous. Such were some of you. But now you are a new person, a new identity. Paul is addressing hypocrisy in Corinth because um, the people in Corinth have been going outside of the church to bring lawsuits upon one another. They're going into the Roman legal system to bring down justice upon one another. And Paul is saying to them, you are forsaking the body of Christ when you do this. And he's explaining to them that they have forgotten who they are. The Corinthians, he says, have a crisis of sin against the body because they first have a crisis of identity. He's saying that their attempt to use the law to expose each other as unrighteous is actually exposing their own unrighteous acts. And he says this is not fitting for a righteous person. So there's a disconnect, he says, between what they, what they do or their, their deeds and what they believe or their creeds. Pastor Mike likes to emphasize that phrase, the deeds and the creeds, they go together. In verse 9, he reminds them that they ought, to be, they ought to be remembering what their new creation calling is, which is inheritance in the kingdom of God. But he's reminding them that inheriting the kingdom is something that the unrighteous people do not get to do. If we say with our lips that we love the Lord, and if we confess our sins, then we must turn from our sin and do righteousness. This is the nature of our new identity. You might agree with me now that the, identity, the idea of an identity in our culture is something we hear a lot about. There are a lot of ways in which people identify themselves. Our name is one of our first ways, and names are very important. This is how we distinguish one person from another uh, through language. We also identify as Americans, at least most of us here do. Americans have a great sense of our national identity. Just think of all, all the ideas that come to mind when you say American. 
Independence, The Land of the Free, Sam Adams and Paul Revere and Betsy Ross and Babe Ruth, Apple Pie. If you ever ask a European to do a, an American impression, you're in for a treat. I bet you uh, Eugene will do one for you if you ask him to. Our identity as Americans carries a reputation. We're known for our lifestyle, we're known for our mannerisms, and we have a whole bunch of ideas about what we stand for as a people. We have a stereotype. And even within America, we like to identify one another as different kinds of Americans. Where do you come from? And we've had political parties going all the way back to the beginning. You can even subdivide political parties now into the kind of person within a political party that you are and define yourself this way. Today, we hear about the rhinos, or Republicans in name only, versus the MAGA, the Make, a great, make America Great crowd. Uh, everyone seems to identify by where they fall on the political spectrum, and in many cases, this is a primary thing for Americans. Now, all of this can be a helpful way of situating ourselves and starting to build relationships with new people. Even in the church, it helps us to have a sort of starting place uh, to set expectations with the people that we meet, for instance, like, what's this person's background? It's good to know these things. It's helpful. Or to know if somebody is a charismatic person or a Lutheran or a Roman Catholic, or if they have a Reformed background. This, this helps us. What do they think about the doctrines that I care about? At least it helps us to know what issues to avoid talking about, if nothing else. Men tend to identify by their careers, the things that they do professionally. Women will often say, I'm a professional mom, or I'm a mommy blogger. We all like to use our hobbies to identify ourselves, to make a statement about who we are and, and what we do and what we think we really are. And then of course, we also hear about identity in the demonic intersectionality movement. This is the movement that wants us to divide into camps based on which oppressed minorities we are. Eric, your cell phone's on the stage. <laughs> Thank you, sir. So oppressed identities becomes a way that people identify. Which group is the most oppressed group out there? Which group is the most disadvantaged group out there? This began with ethnic identities, and it moved quickly onto something very dark, which is people defining who they are by what their favorite kind of sin is. All of this obsession about identity shows us how important it seems to be for us to define who we are for ourselves to make a statement about where we stand and what's important to us. We seem to, help, we seem to believe that this helps us to find solitude with others that are kind of like us. But what it is is uh, scripture that cuts the deepest. God, what does God think about our identity? Because what God says about us points to the way of ultimate truth about who we are. Now, when someone asks you the question, who are you, you tell them your name. That's where you start. Well, we carry someone else's name, too. We carry the name of our Lord. Christian, the word, comes from the Greek Christianos, which means little Christ. So the change that Paul reminds the Corinthians about is actually about the restoration to an original calling, the restoration to bearing the name of God, bearing the image of God. That's why we were made. Scripture says that there's a hierarchy of identity, and at the top of that hierarchy is not who we say we are, but who does Christ say that we are? Because whatever Christ says about who we are, whatever else we might want to call ourselves, all of this must come under his lordship and must become secondary, and he must become primary. 
So there's three points I want to unpack about our identity in Jesus. And the first is that there is a hierarchy to your identity. Who you are in Christ does not necessarily mean leaving behind all the other things that you are. We should think in terms of hierarchy. Turn with me now to another Paul passage. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. Galatians chapter 3. And here's what it says. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. No matter what else we happen to be, nothing about who we are ranks above Jesus Christ. And notice the possessive wording that he has here. You are Christ's. Paul is implying a new kind of servant-master relationship that it replaces an older one. At the deepest core of who we are is a question that we can't escape. Who or what is your master? Who or what do you serve? And this is the question that reveals who we are. Are you a slave to sin or are you a slave to Christ? That's it. Who or what do you serve? Paul is saying that in no event do we get to have absolute freedom. It doesn't exist. You either owe a debt to sin and death, or you owe a debt to Christ, the one who freed you from your old identity. It's one or the other. And it's this master-servant relationship, it's by this relationship that all the other things about our identity, who we are as people, fall into place. Recall the story now about the Pharisees when they were attempting to stump Jesus by asking him whether we should pay taxes. And they wanted to sort of trip Jesus into saying that we should not pay taxes. And if they got him to say that, they thought that they would criminalize him as a, as a revolutionary against Rome. And they thought that he was going to have to say either, yes, you're a Roman citizen or you are a servant of God. But Jesus holds up a coin and he says, bring it to me. And he holds the coin up and he says, whose image is this on the coin? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. The image of the emperor is right there on the coin, he points out. So obviously it's his, give it to him. He never says, don't be a Roman. But he implies here that there is a greater king. He implies that there is a hierarchy. This coin, this piece of metal is made by human hands. It has a human's face on it. Go ahead, pay the tax. But do not forget whose image you bear. Give to Caesar what bears Caesar's image. Give to God what bears God's image. Paul also identified himself as a Roman. He did not give that, uh, that citizenship up once he met the Lord on the Damascus Road. He first submitted to his greater king, but demoted his status as a Roman to a secondary place. So even your identity as an American or a citizen of your wonderful homeland, as good as these things can be, these cannot be your ultimate identity. If it is, it's because you've made an idol out of it. Now, we all stand and we tend to go to events around our country and we say the Pledge of Allegiance. But as people who first identify with Jesus Christ, we cannot truly mean what we say when we pledge our allegiance to anything but Christ, anything but his word. Now, it feels patriotic to do this, but pledging allegiance to a nation is making a promise that as a Christian, you might not be able to keep. 
And I'll let you wrestle with that one. What about family? The disciples came to Jesus in Luke chapter 8 to say, your mother and your brothers have come to see you. And Jesus says, my mother and brothers, they are the ones who hear the word and do it. Now, Jesus isn't saying that Mary and Jude and James are not his natural family. But he is saying that first and foremost, his family are the ones who hear the word and who do it. Jesus identifies with these people because the kingdom, he says, uh, there are more mothers and brothers in the kingdom than even his natural family. They are closer to his family. So see how even Jesus, Jesus reorganizes the identity, the hierarchy of identity based on the kingdom of God. So who are you first? What identity have you put at the top of your hierarchy? First, we are the people of God. We are first the children of God. We are first the slaves to Christ. We are first the body of Jesus Christ. The Bible uses all of these metaphors because together they help us to get our minds around how we should function in this new identity. Starting at the top, Jesus Christ, hearing his word, obeying it. I remember a time when my friend, uh, Ted Robinson, had a new grandson born to his family, and when he, he announced his birth, he pulled out a picture of his grandson, and he said, meet the newest Robinson, a warrior of Jesus Christ. And it was a profound thing to hear him say, a grandfather ordering his grandson's identity according to how God defined him. Before this child had spoken his first word, before he could say his own name or had the capacity to choose whether he was going to become a doctor or an athlete or an artist, before he knew that he was a brother or a son or a father, his grandfather already knew who he was. First, before all of those good things, he was a warrior of the Lord. All other aspects of of that child's identity were yet to be discovered, but his destiny as a person was established. This child belongs to Christ. And that's covenant theology right there. Our identity in Christ means that we have to think hard about what good things that we identify with before Christ. And when we locate these things, our job is pretty simple. We have to demote them. We're not necessarily called to lose them completely, but we have to put them under the foot of Jesus. This is a question of hierarchy. We must reorder the good things that make up who we are, placing them lower in rank than our identity in Jesus Christ. So that leads me to the second point, which is the arranging of our hierarchy means that we have to reckon with what Paul means by the word, you were sanctified. Some of our identity we have to demote, but other things we have to destroy. Paul lists some of these things which have no place at all within our hierarchy the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, the greedy, those given to drunkenness, revilers, and swindlers. These kinds of people, he says, are the atakoi, those who hate the truth and love lies, those who take pleasure in evil, and those to whom evil is a way of life. These are identities of those who have contempt for God's law. So Paul is saying, People like this cannot inherit the kingdom. But you, to the Corinthians, he says, you were sanctified. Being sanctified, it means to be made holy, being separated from what is unholy. Holiness, Paul says, is fundamental to the kingdom of God. It is basic. 
Christ is the image, the personification of holiness, and we're supposed to emulate him. How exactly do we do that, you might ask? Because no matter what, we still keep sinning. Doesn't Jesus know who he's working with? Well, the text actually explains that you are not that creature anymore. The text explains that it is an absurdity to do those things that we formerly did. In Galatians 2, Paul tells us that that man that we used to be, that man was crucified with Christ. He's gone. The apostles explain that when we sin, we do this because of our muscle memory. The spiritual muscle of our old heart is still bound up within our body, and it's grasping for air. Paul is beckoning us to remember who we now are. Don't go back. Don't go back. Go forward. Go forward to the image of the Son. And now the prophet Ezekiel, he spoke about the heart change that would come later when the kingdom came. Turn with me now to Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel 11. I'm going to start in verse 18 through 20. And they shall come thither, and they shall take away all the detestable things thereof, and all the abominations thereof from thence. And I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take away the stony heart of their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh. I will take away the heart of stone, another translation says, the ESV and I will give you a heart of flesh. The Bible indicates that the heart is the very core of your person. It's the part of you that drives all your wants and desires. Now, we have modern language and scientific language. We know what the heart is as an organ, but the Bible doesn't talk about the heart in that way. The Bible talks about the heart being the, the innermost part of your soul. It, it drives your wants and desires. The, the things that make you want to do things, those come out of the heart. Our old heart desired to sin. Our old heart propelled us to abandon God's law. Our new heart restores us. We get the heart of Christ within us. And it's because of this that the Spirit of God is restored to us. The Spirit of God can dwell within us because of our new heart. This is exactly what Jesus told the disciples was going to happen in John chapter 14. Uh, verses 15 through 17, I'll just read that. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither knows him, sees him, or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. It is the presence of the Spirit of God within us that allows us to mimic the holiness of Christ. That is why we can say the kinds of things that the psalmist says in Psalm 119, Lord, how I love your law. Your testimonies, they're perfect, they're pure. Your statutes, they are altogether righteous. Our old person, our old heart could never have propelled us to say these things. One of the main ways you can tell that your identity has been changed has been remade is because you hate your sin now. Our sin, it frustrates us. This frustration, this frustration itself is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We now realize that we hate it when we break God's law. 
This feeling of guilt or shame for your sin, it is grace. Treasure it. Don't brush it aside. A Christian should embrace that feeling because it's the heart of Christ operating within you. Your new heart is beating. We Christians are often guilty of thinking that Christ's renovation work in us, the, the fixing up of the, of the new person that he's done, is already behind us. We think that we can go about being saved and just relishing in the finished work. But the work goes on. God is not interested in stopping halfway. He doesn't want a kind of okay image of Christ in you. He wants a perfect image. He wants, us to, make, he wants to make us excellent mirror images of Christ. Now, there's a kind of graph that mathematicians like to use, and I hope my daughter, Ramey, doesn't correct my, my pronunciation. Uh, it's called the asymptotes, the asymptotes graph. I think she knows what I'm talking about. An asymptotes is a curved line that runs parallel to a straight line, getting closer and closer and never quite touching. It starts off very far away from the straight line, but over time, it nearly, nearly touches that straight line. We are like that curved line. Our former self begins way, way out, far away from Christ. But when Christ calls us, immediately there's a sharp turn, like a hockey stick curve, and we, and we come close to uh, mimicking the line that was represented by Christ. It's like a magnet. A magnet draws us all at once close to Christ, and we start looking like night and day compared to the old person that we were yesterday. But we're not done. This renovation process continues as he keeps peeling layers of our old person away. The layers keep getting more and more subtle, more and more nuanced. At Mount Rushmore earlier this year, our family learned about the process that it took to carve a mountain into the image of four presidents. You start now with huge dynamite charges. You blast away massive chunks of the mountain. And then as they move, small, and they move along, you start using smaller blasts to get more precision kind of work done. And then when the rough image is starting to take shape, they all moved on to chisels and hammers and small grinding tools as the image reaches completion. So the further we go, the more we cease to recognize the picture of our old self at all. If we let the spirit do his work, if we're patient, this transformation will continue deeper and deeper. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis paraphrased a parable that he took from George MacDonald, and he, he says it like this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And You knew all those jobs needed to be done, so you're not surprised. But now, presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. The command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. C.S. Lewis. 
Now, my last point is that our change in personhood requires us to look at Jesus not only as our Savior, but also as our Lord. There's a big difference between what we say when we say Jesus our Savior and Jesus our Lord, even though they're the same, uh, two sides of the same coin. This kind of talk makes the world now feel very uncomfortable. It made the rulers of Rome uneasy back in the beginning, and it makes our culture uneasy today, and it should. But sadly, it's not just the unrighteous that are uneasy about Christ's lordship. The church is still repeating the sin of Corinth. We are still grasping for a hope that we can somehow be saved by Christ. Somehow we can enter the kingdom without actually bending a knee to the rule of Christ the King. We love to talk about Jesus, our personal Savior. We love it. But it's the lordship of Christ that's actually difficult. And so we don't like to talk about it. We talk about the part of the gospel that we like. But this half gospel, it is another gospel entirely. It's a softening or a neutralizing of the gospel that the apostles preached. When we do this, we remove the sting of the gospel as it pertains to sin and the lordship of Christ. And why is that, you could ask? Does Christ, does he not accept us for who we are? Does he not love us in our current state? And this is a complex sort of question. Yes and no. As we like to point out, Jesus reclined with sinners to eat with them. Jesus broke down cultural barriers. Jesus stepped across the lines of social norms, and he touched the unclean. He recognizes us in our weakness. Yes, he does. And we love to hear this part. And if we squint so that we have a kind of blurred vision, we can make out a picture of Jesus that uh, does not judge us. A Jesus that accepts us and affirms us and that understands, an inclusive Jesus. A Jesus that acknowledges our hurts but is quiet about the sin that caused our brokenness. Jesus stoops low to meet us in our wretched state so that he can rescue, so that he can heal and restore and reform and renew. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 16, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. Jesus wanted us to understand who it was that was going to be able to inherit the kingdom. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In antiquity, the lines that separated humanity were ethnic in nature. Jews versus Greek, Greek versus barbarians. Paul is saying to the Corinthians that there's a new dividing line between the old humanity and the new humanity, and that line is Jesus Christ. All nations would now be blessed, all the peoples of the world. No barrier to class, no barrier to ethnicity, no barrier to whether you had thought you had followed the law to a perfect T or not. All have entry into the kingdom and the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus said that he was not only the gate to the kingdom, he was also a physician who came to work on the sick. In a hospital, you find doctors. In a hospital, you find medicine, healing, restoration. This is the gift of Jesus that he offers us through his lordship. It's not separate from his lordship. It is his lordship that brings this healing. The new restored personhood, is, it is a free gift, but we must recognize that this free gift replaces wholesale what we had before. We are unmade and remade completely. 
We are crucified with Christ and raised somebody completely new. So what does this new life look like? Well, it begins with repentance. It is repentance that is the sign of the work that the Holy Spirit does in us. Where there is repentance of sin, there is an acknowledgement of the lordship of Christ. Without repentance, there is no lordship, no submission to the moral standard of Jesus. And without Jesus as Lord, there is no Jesus as Savior. It is slavery to sin that we are saved from. If we are not saved from sin, we are not saved from anything. Repentance is active. It is the act of doing something about the guilt that you feel for your sin, the shame that you feel for your sin. It's not just words that say, we're sorry, we wish we hadn't done that, but what can we do? This is who we are. No, repentance is, act, is packed with an active change in direction. Repentance means a turning around. It means stop going this way and go this way. And return to God. You can see how far off we are now when, when you see churches stop calling for repentance. They stop saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. They stop calling for sinners to die to themselves so that they can enter the kingdom as a new person. They stop doing this because these people, they want parity with the world. They want parity with what the world wants. Parity with those who want affirmation in their old identity. It is easy to preach the comfortable words of Jesus without condemning sin, without calling for repentance. TJ, in his sermon to us last week, he, he mentioned that Christ said some very alarming words to us. That Christians who use his name but do not do his work, Christians who preach acceptance without repentance should take note. Matthew 7, verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Sin is the forsaking of God's law. That's what sin is. The forsaking of our call to do the work of our Father in heaven. On all sides of us now, there are people who have no use for the law of God and who claim to be children of God. Jesus says, the one who does his will, the law of my father, he will enter the kingdom. And this is about lordship. We love to talk about our brokenness. We love that we can come to church and find like-minded hurting and like-minded forgotten, like-minded victims we want to have our brokenness affirmed. But we have to be a, beware of this sort of brokenness that does not mention repentance. The Holy Spirit is not interested in merely affirming our brokenness. The Spirit is in the business of restoration. When the Spirit moves in us, he moves us to repentance. Without repentance, it does us no good to wallow in brokenness. Repentance, submitting to Christ as Lord, is where healing begins. Brothers and sisters, Christ is here not only to meet you in your brokenness, but to acknowledge your hurt, to restore you to what you were created to be, his likeness. And that likeness is not broken anymore. His body was broken. His body was destroyed. His body took on the curse of death that was coming for you. But now, you are his body, and Christ is glorified. He does not work with the old material. 
He does not want to heal your old heart. He wants to cut it out. He wants to replace it. He doesn't care about your personal truth. He doesn't care about your true self. He wants to destroy it and replace it with himself. Christ told his disciples, if you love me, you will obey me. Christ told them, the world will hate you because they hate me. We're now bound to Christ. We're together in this with Christ. The world should hate you because the world hates the removal of sin. The world identifies with sin. When the people, act, when the people of God act like the body of Jesus Christ, when they turn up the heat, when they call the world to repent, the world hates this because it's, it's like their very soul is being attacked. Their very soul is being ripped away. Their personhood is being threatened, and it is. Christ threatens your personhood, and that's the gospel by definition. There's a battle happening out there right now, and we're, we're being asked to or demanded to affirm their truth. They're demanding that we say, peace, peace, about sin and perversion everywhere, about the world's claim to identity. And when we resist, they get hysterical. But culture has to take its lead from the faithfulness of God's people. The culture reflects the church. So what is our place in all of this? Well, the church is not doing too well. Instead of mirroring, mirroring the one who has remade our identity, we're now turning that mirror back on the world. Drive down any street in Seattle, and if you find churches at all, you're going to see signs that say acceptance and inclusion and diversity and affirmation, and yes, even the word pride. I've seen it. Well, where's the word repent? These churches want no part of the lordship of Jesus. They want no part of healing by means of death to the old man. These churches desire peace with the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, the church has lost its savior. Jesus says we might as well be trampled underfoot. But it is our calling, it is our calling to be faithful, our calling to be a model of repentance, one to another, and to call the world to repentance. The prophet Malachi calls in chapter 3, verse 7, From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, and you have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? It is through Christ that we return. Do you find yourself taking the blessings of life without gratitude, accepting the gifts of God, but not acknowledging the giver? Are, you think, are there things that you consider to be so much a part of your personhood that it, you can't bear the thought of losing them? Do you have idols that you need to demote? Or have you felt yourself shrugging off the sting of guilt for something that you said or did in anger or lust or jealousy, telling yourself that's just who you are? Have you been excusing the sins of your brother or sister, preferring to maintain parity with their comfort instead of calling them to repent? Is there a sin that you've been excusing because you tell yourself, you're a sinner, and that's all you can be. 
repent. All of this is your old identity talking to you. Your old man grasping for survival, reaching up out of the grave. There's good news. The person that you are is a spirit-filled reflection of the Son of God. Who you are is a son or a daughter of the king. Who you are is a co-ruler of his creation, an inheritant of the kingdom of God. Embrace repentance. Embrace what it really means. Return to the Father. Fall in love with his commandments. Follow Jesus. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your great commandments. We thank you that you have given us your son, and your son has given us his new heart. And we praise you that your spirit now dwells within us, enabling us to call you Abba, Father, once again. Give your people a heart for holiness, a heart to follow your son, and to recognize the image of your son in each other as we live for the kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen.